Migration is front of mind in Houston. Immigration is consistently one of the most important issues to voters in both Texas and across the United States. And here in Houston, we resettle more refugees than anywhere else in the country. But as our world faces a changing climate, so too will our migration patterns change. Hotter landscapes, longer droughts, and rising coastlines will force more people around the world to leave their homes. Animals and plants are likewise seeking new terrain that is closer in climate to their natural habitat. So, as our world warms, what does it mean for migration? I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies program and the program manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with three local advocates who have been thinking deeply about climate and migration. Leticia Gutierrez is the Director of Government Relations and Community Outreach at Air Alliance Houston and is organizing a two-day symposium hosted at Rice University and the Houston Climate Justice Museum at The Post in downtown Houston on February 2nd and 3rd. Aaron Ambroso is the Director of the Houston Climate Justice Museum, which is currently featuring an exhibit on climate migration. Karen Kleiman is an associate professor of history at the University of Houston and an advisor on the Houston Climate Justice Museum's exhibit. So uh, Leticia, Erin, Karen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, so, so just to start off, um, you know, I, I want to get into to folks' stories about how this issue came to your attention, how you're thinking about it. But just to start us off, I want to think around when folks think of climate change, I, I don't necessarily think the first thing they jump to is migration. Um, and yet it's, it's one of these challenges that climate change just represents and that, you know, as the climate changes, places are going to increasingly become unlivable. They're going to force migration of all forms. Uh, and the journeys that refugees will take are only going to become more difficult. So just for us to start off, I would love to, to hear of how this issue kind of came to front of mind for each of you, what drew you into it. Um, and Aaron and Karen, I'm thinking really specifically here about your work in the current exhibit that's up at the Houston Climate Justice Museum and Leticia, of course, the upcoming symposium. Um, I guess for me, um, it in the work that we do, um, it's it's very intersectional whenever we do try to outreach to immigrant communities and some of the stories that they tell us as to why they're here. And then having to deal with participating in hearings or town halls as it pertains to pollution. And so a lot of the times um, the stories that we hear have to do with um, desperation. It's not as if uh, communities looking to what I always say, baptize themselves through the desert and pray that they make mm -hmm. it here alive, only to yet again subject themselves to more issues. Um, this particular symposium for me is also very personal. I'm um, an immigrant. I was here in this country undocumented for many years. Um, the same thing with my family. It wasn't as if my dad woke up one day at three o'clock in the morning and said, oh, let's see what's you know, six hours further up north, um, not being able to speak the language, no money, no real um, education, formal education um, to see what was going to happen. And what I try to explain is that families do this out of desperation. Um, we were living off of the land, and when the land became dry, 
there was no food. And so, again, these are I know my story is um, from many years ago, but those stories continue to um, come to the forefront and they are still happening now more than ever. Hmm. Well, um, I think this project got started for us about two or three years ago when a, another professor from UH, uh, Keith McNeil, who's in the anthropology department, uh, came to us um, and said, hey, I've got all these um, um, kinds of um, detritus, bits of shirts and water bottles that uh, I've collected in the desert out in mm -hmm. south of San Diego, uh, where people are, where undocumented folks are, are, um, are migrating through and, and leaving things behind in the desert. And, um, uh, and that kind of clued us into um, the, um, I guess, the humanitarian kind of disaster, which is our, our, our migration um, uh, policy and, um, and the people who are crossing the border in South Texas every year and, and um, either going missing or um, um, dying of things like thirst. And um, and so that launched um, um, this this broader project uh, that we started looking at um, that intersection of um, climate change and migration because it's not only that people uh, coming from Central and South America are uh, facing hotter temperatures uh, when they're traveling through um, let's say South Texas, but also that um, the extreme weather. Um, uh, repeated hurricanes, long-standing droughts, famine, crop failure, um, that these things are um, really important drivers of migration in um, um, in places like Mexico and Central America. So um, it was also about um, telling that story of connecting the dots and um, um, thinking about how extreme weather is, is connected to displacement um, and about um, the stakes of that. Um, and, and why that matters here in Houston, an incredibly um, um, diverse uh, and multinational city, um, and uh, but also a city where we um, we have uh, many detention centers for for undocumented uh, people around the city uh, who are going through a completely different legal system, um, who are are uh, overwhelmingly not having um, uh, representation. Uh, legal representation in uh, in the court uh, when they're going for things like asylum his, uh, hearings. So uh, trying to think about it from a global perspective and also why that matters here uh, is kind of what, what got us uh, into it. And me, I want to say that I haven't advised on the um, exhibitions at the museum, but I do go in and paint walls and dance sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on the board, and I'm happy to, I'm really into what they're doing at the Houston Climate Justice Museum. And I am a specialist in African history. And um, I write about the history of U.S. oil companies in Africa. And so I have a sense of the kind of shadowy world between global geopolitics and extractive industries in Africa. And while it's hard in Africa to parse out exactly why people are migrating, climate is having a lot to do with it. I need to do a lot more research and get specific. I'm going to try to focus on that for the February 3rd symposium. But we've always had the problem of wars and economic um, migration, and these things are all melding into one. You know, for example, in Ethiopia, I just got back from there this last week. So... Um, drought, leading to war, leading to migration. And then the thing that's really fascinating me and I want to focus on a little bit in um, talking and writing is this strange phenomenon whereby the transition to green energy 
is calling, causing all sorts of havoc in Africa around mm -hmm. the extraction of the minerals needed. And I don't think that the American public is fully clear on the way that that is happening and who they should be doing their activism against. Like, it's a pretty... We can't just say there's a genocide in Congo mm. or free Congo. We need to understand the corporations. We need to understand the individual diamond actors from Israel who've been involved in selling companies to the Chinese for the past two decades. It's super complex. So I'm interested in laying that out a little bit so that people can direct their activism in the right ways. I think... Um that, the, thank you. That, that both prompts us to just the size of this problem. Whenever we, you know, the nice thing about having an environmental show is <laughs> we do get to talk about a large range of things. Um, but I mean, when we think of these migratory issues and the various causes, what I love that you're pointing us to is some of the, the granularity of the actual legal terms around these and some of what you were talking with as well, Aaron, about the process of migration. But it's, it's, you know, it's refugees, right? We haven't actually, I don't know that we've said that word yet, but the idea of refugees and who that encompasses and who it doesn't. And so one thing that seems clear from the conversation so far is, you know, we, we know that climate change is already exacerbating these routes of migration, and it's only going to intensify and make more necessary uh, our preparedness and thought about how we're going to deal with a world where places are sinking beneath the water, places are becoming too hot for people to live. So as as this refugee crisis, which is already the worst it's been in global history, continues to, to worsen from climate change, what that looks like, and especially for those migrants who, uh, who are not really recognized in the way that other refugees are, right? And so what I mean by that, and, and I'd love for, for others to jump in, is that in thinking of UN designations of refugee, climate isn't a term that's there. Uh, there, are, there are no environmental refugees under international law. And so that makes it very difficult to, to think about as people lose their homes to climate change, what does that mean for, for migrants and refugees who are, who are termless or, or not protected by the, the laws that we would seek out? I mean, again, for me, um, just seeing what's in our current southern border in Texas, because um, I do here recently have been crossing to go back home. And it, I've never seen it the way that it has been the last couple of years. It's mm. um, There is a huge backlog. There's children running around without parental su supervision. Um, it's literally like, it literally feels like it's out of an apocalyptic movie. Mm. Um, and again, what I feel that, I, at least not all, but some, I feel just think that it's a choice and it's not. This is desperation. These are families and human beings that just, you know, they see America as, oh, well, we can just cross and, you know, we can work and we can feed ourselves and we can have access to a life um, to where their, what their current situation is, again, is out of desperation. And so when you have um, elected officials that are not really looking at the root cause, and I'm not saying that it's 100 percent that whole reason, but it is a huge piece of that puzzle and just enacting things um, and creating more chaos by putting saws in the river or enacting more laws to basically racial profile um, for, for those who are unfamiliar with what you're talking oh, about, can you can you clarify <laughs> a little bit what you mean by saws in the river and, and some of these policies that you're referencing? Well, thank you for stopping me because... Um, you know, I, I just assume and the truth is, is that, no, not everyone knows if someone is listening to this and they don't live in the state or even if they do, 
Um, even my friends in California did not believe until I showed them videos of there's these there are actual saws in the Rio Grande that if someone tries to cross, um, they will get stuck and um, it will kill them. Um, there's been a, a couple of teenagers that have um, gotten um, stuck, a pregnant mother. Uh, I mean, I can go on and on. And it's um, it's atrocious to even talk about because even whenever I, I talk about it, it's almost as if it's a movie um, and not actual things that human beings who claim to be for humanity um, are doing. And again, that's this is just one of many things that our current um, – representation in this state uh, continue to come at immigrants. And so, um, you know, also, you know, if, if the way my kids put it, if, if at any level of Jumanji you happen to cross and excel at, they'll still get you, for instance, if you, you know, the predominantly uh, construction workers that work outside in this state are 70 percent Hispanic. And so now, you know, they thought they think it, the state thinks it's a good idea to take away water breaks mm-hmm. and one of the hottest summers, you know, on in recorded history. And so, again, you know, there's just it seems like at every level um, we're made to feel as if we're less than and our lives do not matter, um, even as it pertains to, you know, education and the things that are happening in our in our region around that, which I won't delve into. But again, just pointing to a lot of the. Um, laws that are coming down the pike that are strictly directed um, to immigrants. And so when people say, well, you know, we have community meetings and it's predominantly in a Hispanic community and community does not show up, they say, well, it's because they don't care. No, it's not that we don't care. It's that we're afraid that someone around the corner is seeking to somehow, some way um, hurt us. And so, again, I mean, without really paying attention to why these things are happening, ways to hopefully mitigate it in some sense, as you pointed out, there is currently, you know, no path to um, immigration as it pertains to climate issues. However, there hasn't been any immigration overhaul since the 80s. The only reason I'm a resident of this country now, recently a U.S. citizen, is because there was a path to citizenship at some point. And I hate to say that it happened to be a Republican president at the time, but at the same time, those they understood the need and they understood what we brought to the table. And I feel like right now we're just seen as animals. Well, and I, I think actually to that point, though, it's historically immigration was far more a bipartisan issue. It's become polarized in a way that's servicing no one and, and certainly not an issue that's going to be going down in, in the coming years. And so it's certainly something that, yeah, I think <laughs> some measure of, of, of policy is pretty much desired by everyone. What what that looks like might be quite different, but we're, we're hoping that some kind of change will, will come. Aaron, I think like, you wanted to jump in. Um, well, yeah, I think that you hit it on the head with the stakes of, of what we're talking about in terms of lots of people are showing up at borders all over the world that are coming from um, – They're coming from um, devastated landscapes, from industry or from pollution and um, uh, or from land grabs. And there's no sort of legal infrastructure at that level to to recognize them. Um, And um, so um, I'm just reminded of, you know, I'm thinking also about borders um, throughout the world, the Mediterranean, for example, where... um, 
basically uh, thousands of migrants also die in, in capsized ships mm. um, in the Med- Mediterranean every year. Um, and um, uh, not dissimilar from the southern border uh, here in the United States. So I think, um, yeah, we're facing a world where xenophobia, nativism, the hardening of borders um, is only increasing at the worst time, basically. And um, I'm reminded of a book called Exit West, um, which is a great novel about about a, a couple who are uh, we presume coming from somewhere in the Middle East, uh, in a in a war-ravaged uh, town, um, they step through these magical sort of doorways or portals to other parts of the world, um, and uh, and one of the portals is to uh, the UK, to in London, and uh, where they experience um, various forms of of racism and um, attacks, but um, they also end up being uh, kind of wrapped up into. Um, new uh, world-building projects, uh, new infrastructure projects to house all these migrants who are coming from all these places. And um, and I think that that's really the, the crossroads. Is, uh, we have, on the one hand, a, uh, a world where we head more into, um, into climate disaster, more into uh, the strengthening of borders, uh, or we have a world where we try to um, uh, try to build something together across racial lines, across national lines, across uh, species lines, even, um, and and try to hold on to those kinds of alliances that that um, that help make our world possible. So, um, so yeah, I guess uh, stark choices. And I, I guess that makes our, our book recommendation of the day on the show. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Exa West, gorgeous novel. Um, I, I want to thank you for for directly bringing race into the conversation, uh, and you know the example that you give with the Mediterranean. I'm thinking specifically of Italy, mm-hmm. which is something that we talk about in classes quite a bit. Is this issue with Italy of you know oh, we don't have enough people, we have to seek out immigrants. We're going to create entire systems where if you can find a grandparent or a great grandparent who is Italian, we'll let you directly get an Italian passport mm-hmm. and these kind of programs to deliberately import people. And when they have a, a wave of migrants at their border, very deliberately turning them away. And I think most of us probably remember the really horrific images of Syrian refugees and dead children on the beach. Um, that was incredibly disturbing. Uh, and so, I mean, the, the idea that this is somehow an issue separate from race is, is just kind of, well, it's wrong. <laughs> it's just flatly wrong. Okay. Um, and so I, I'd like to, to open up. I know this is something that the exhibit thinks through a good bit, but I, I'd love to, to have kind of a conversation around the colonial impacts that I know you're, you're trying to explore in the exhibit, uh, and especially with your expertise in Africa, if we can think somewhat about how race and colonialism factor into this conversation globally and how those are impacting uh, what we're looking at in terms of who's actually immigrating and who's going to be able to to maybe find some place to go and and where that is a possibility and why it's not in some places. Well, I do want to um, mention that at the border, there's lots and lots of Africans, a lot of more um, Mauritanians right now. There's uh, something going on there with youth, young men leaving. Um, lots of Syrians, too, beyond the people from Central America, and that needs to be recognized. Um, I don't know how policy is discerned. I know that for a long time, many Africans were, helped in, were held in those housing places during the Trump era. They were held in there in te- deplorable conditions. So that's there is some NGOs in town that deal directly with that. Um, 
what do I say? I don't know what to say about the Italian situation. I mean, really, it is a mix of Eritreans, Syrians, and West Africans at this point. I think, you know, I don't know the numbers on that, but... I, I don't, don't think... know how deep in the weeds we need to go on Italy specifically. Yeah, or <laughs> any of, of the Mediterranean, Greece, yeah. you know, like, I, I think that we need to think about... Um, these are mixed groups of people mm -hmm. because of various situations. It's not one race. But I do want to say that one of the things that's really bothersome is in Britain, they've got a policy uh, in Parliament that they want to send as many refugees as they can to Rwanda. Mm. Mm. And I just saw something from an Israeli newspaper where they were thinking of sending Palestinians to Congo. <laughs> So we're getting into dystopian, surreal scenarios that are really scary. And um, those deals are set up between, like in the Congo, there's been a long alliance with um, Israeli diamond folks with the leadership of the Congolese government. Mm -hmm. And so they're in close, they're working together already in the extraction industry. So these kind of policies come easily, but you need to know that background. Another thing I wanted to say that's a little bit on this is um, paying attention to straight out climate change news, because I heard the other day that like m the Panama Canal is so dry that Maersk is no longer going to be doing shipping. They're going to use mm -hmm. railroads, mm -hmm. which is going back to a 19th century model, which means if we track that and then we start noticing how many Panamanians are coming and what's happening to the economy in Panama, because they did pretty well once they got control of the Panama Canal on their mm -hmm. own after being colonized for so long. There's a nice history there. But now the climate change is going to cause something different, and we may see that at our border. So sometimes just listening and paying attention and gathering the data just about climate change that's not really politicized, it's more like looking in the business journals, mm -hmm. was really going to help us understand um, on the ground and make cases later on for legal cases or mm. being able to parse out what is um, economic migration, what is migration due to violence. Um, and then oftentimes in Africa, the way it works is the drought will happen and then violence will ensue. And it's hard to understand mm. that the drought was at the root of that. And then the guns, the arms trade to Africa. So, you know, all those things get played in. So I find that important to parse those things out. There's many ways to think about it. Uh, I think there's something like um, some of our major metropolises today that are most at risk of sea level rise, like New York and Mumbai, were um, created through the colonial process. Those were those were cities of uh, that, that arose because of... Um, because of colonization, because of trade linked to uh, colonial conquest. So uh, those major cities are directly a result of, of, of colonialism. Um, uh, so that's one direct uh, way. I mean, of course, um, climate justice is often about how the global north uh, uh, bears disproportionate uh, burden of creating climate change, while the global south um, sees the uh, disproportionately uh, feels the effects of climate change. So, definitely, climate change is a um, is an issue that that's um, intersected by those those kinds of social, national, racial differences. That's okay. I, I want to pull us back a little bit to Houston anyway. That was a nice detour into the global ramifications of this. But, you know, something that I, I would do want us to consider is the, the fact that, you know, Houston absorbs more refugees than anywhere else in the country. And so I think as we turn our attention to the fact that, as you were just saying, Professor, you know, this is only going to continue developing in numerous places and numerous ways. We're going to see climate change continue to drive migration. Um, what does that mean here in town? What does that mean 
in terms of what we should be preparing for and thinking about and and how to acknowledge that, you know, Houston is an immigrant city. It's a city that's immensely proud of the, the amount of diversity that's present and the fact that we have been an immigrant city uh, and is very much only continuing to grow <laughs> because of our immigrants and the amount of immigration coming in. If you were to factor out immigration from the city, we're shrinking. <laughs> we're actually losing population without immigration. Um, but what does that mean in terms of how we should be thinking about particularly with, uh, you know, state figures who are, who are very keen to send people out of state, who are, who are not necessarily wanting Texas to continue to be a, a home for immigrants. What does that mean for the future of Houston and how we should be thinking about this and maybe, you know, spreading some, some light on folks who are working in, already on this issue around town? Um, and in terms of why it matters to Houston, um and to the, the golf course more broadly is um, we can think about Harvey and uh, uh, these um, superstorms um, uh, and the displacement created from them um, as uh, also a type of internal displacement, a type of internal uh, uh, refugeeism, you might say, um, where um, um, uh, people are dealing with uh, the legacies of um, disregard for the poor, of failing infrastructure, and now of uh, climate change-fueled storms, which are coming together to create um, to create the um, the disasters um, that have been things like Katrina and Harvey and and Maria, and also in the wake of those disasters, we see um, uh, that um, they are taken as opportunities to. Um, uh, work in um, things like um, the privatization of um, uh, of certain um, areas of society, like the privatization of schools, um, the privatization of the of the New Orleans school system after Katrina. So these disasters are are opportunities for um, um, for folks to extend business interests. But um, also, we know from research that. Um, uh, whether you are white or black determines your or, or has a large role in your outcome of these disasters. So um, uh, uh, people with more wealth, people who are homeowners, um, are doing better um, after um, events like Harvey. And we also know that um, there's things like the um, the the. the uh, the racist distribution of um, funds from the from the GLO office, um, uh, where um, the state is deliberately trying to um, refuse disaster relief to um, um, to Harris County and to Houston. So um, there's many dimensions of of um, of this that are, are important for for race and for thinking about that, and that's another huge reason why it matters for Houston. I appreciate that, especially given um, we've talked on the show previously, and you can go back and listen to older episodes where we've really discussed kind of internal displacement around Harvey as, as someone who studied Katrina quite extensively. You know, that, that parallel to that word that we brought up, refugee, right? The fact that Katrina migrants were labeled refugees, which is 
talking about people within their own country being declared officially stateless by the media is a, is a deeply troubling and traumatic issue that as we consider the, the lived implications of this, certainly that kind of neoliberal impulse that you're talking about of moving in after disaster, taking over, this goes back to uh, Naomi Klein, a kind of popular thinker and, and scholar uh, around what she terms the shock doctrine, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you're describing as, as moving in, taking over, uh, and seeing the privatization of, of really everything and, and not to, to a more successful place, but rather to the detriment of exactly those who are already impoverished, who are already the most socioeconomically and racially uh, on the margins of society and at most risk. Uh, so I really appreciate you foregrounding what we're thinking about with, yeah, both post Harvey in Houston, but also what this looks like going forward. Can I just add really quickly Please. in regards to what you just mentioned, any time there's federal funding or state funding as it pertains to the undocumented, um, there is um, a lot of times no way for them to be able to take advantage Mm. of those resources either. So when you're having to depend on a day-by-day paycheck um, to survive, when you have a catastrophic weather pattern that is becoming the norm now here, um, you know, these types of things um, exasperate those types of issues as well there because there is literally zero dollars being handed to um, immigrant families. No, I, th- I so appreciate that. And that exactly just continues to, to point to why. So we have more refugees coming in as we have more people who are, who are forced to live without the kind of social security net that we would hope that people have access to some kind of protections, uh, that it's just enhancing those risks. And that has very real lived consequences for our neighbors here. So thank you for that, Leticia. Um, Well, given that a lot of my work entails um, talking to elected officials and our state regulators, um, I mean, I'm I'm happy that actually one of our very outspoken state representatives, Cristina Morales, will be kicking off the symposium on Friday to speak on specifically um, some of the bills that are coming through. And um, again, just some of the things that are going on and and what that means even economically. Um, because I don't, again, I don't, when I hear, we're not, we're nonpartisan by the way, and so am I. But when you hear the other side that is actually seeking to do the atrocious things and um, human rights violations, they always talk about money and they always talk about drain on the economy and they talk about how this is, you know, basically putting um, putting us in, in such a way that we are going to suffer. And so that's actually the contrary. There's a lot of um, the cost benefit analysis of putting things in place and putting some sort of mitigation strategies to make sure that we do have a path to citizenship or even residency or immigration for that matter, um, where um, whether it be climate or any other sort of asylum seekers that are coming into the country um, to have some way for them to um, acclimate, I guess, if that's what they're looking for. And so I think that for state legislators like Morales, who see this as just targeting specifically black and brown skin people um, because the current bills that are coming down the pike literally give jurisdiction to anyone that has not dealt with any sort of border 
enforcement. Um, this would give any enforcement person, even like a security guard who has happens to have a gun, to pull anybody over, detain them, possibly hurt them, and have justification behind it. And so this is why they're they're considered racist laws because you wouldn't be pulling someone over that I know viewers can't see what I look like, but I do look Anglo, and that's due to immigration. Um, but my family doesn't look the way that I do. They don't. They have darker skin. And my father, who does not speak English and carries his passport everywhere he goes, and the minute he hears, even though he has nothing to fear, um, the minute he hears that there's a new law that's possibly going to pull him over, he's not going to go after dark. He's not going to spend money. He's not going to be a productive I mean, I'm not saying he's going to go do illegal things, but he's not going to be participating in anything that he might think that is going to possibly um, shine a light on him. And so this is this affects everything. It's a domino effect when you do not have a certain group of people participating in processes that are needed for us to have um, cohesive policies that impact us all in a better way. And so, again, um, I think that I'm hoping that um, – Representative Morales will bring some more information and ways for us to get involved because I always say that it's not just an immigration issue, it's a human rights issue. And it's something that um, I feel that we all need to get involved in, not just, you know, people in the East End or Northeast, but also on the West Side. This is why I'm, you know, committed to bringing these issues to different groups of people that I feel maybe aren't necessarily, not that they're not in the know, but they don't necessarily hear them in their spaces. And I'm hoping that this is a conversation that will continue um, and that we can continue to have these types of um, symposiums, art exhibitions and whatnot um, to bring, you know, faces and humanity to those that say they care. Well, and to that point, Leticia, can you just walk us through a little bit what the symposium is and, and what folks can expect if they're able to attend and, and why they should want to attend beyond, you know, the exciting folks that you already have lined up to speak. But just, you know, tell us a little about the symposium. So I, I was just mentioning to Aaron right before we started this that I consider myself a connector. <laughs> and so, you know, being a, a nominate or I guess uh, not nominated, not the right word, but uh, I guess being basically the community fellow here at Rice, I obviously saw an opportunity um, to present to some of my colleagues that had have been talking about doing specifically a climate migration, climate refugee symposium to talk about the issues. But more importantly, um, as I mentioned, to bring the, this issue to a completely different demographic that maybe isn't usually involved in these types of things. And so um, that is why I'm very excited that we do have a state representative in terms of what she's trying to push for and things that she's trying to accomplish and ways for different demographic of people to get involved that hopefully maybe that can make some changes. Um, that's what I'm about. And then also having um, other nonprofit immigration organizations like Eddie Canales with um, – uh, Angels at the Border, and then uh, Cesar Espinosa from FIEL, who's also an immigrants' right um, organization, as well as obviously academia and on the panel to be able to point more towards statistics and numbers and maps as to how this issue is going to continue to exasperate if we don't really understand what's at the root of the problem and try to figure out ways to solve it and not just, again, put salts in the river. <laughs> 
So it sounds like, yeah, for, for those who are, who are joining, you know, certainly some some overall ideas about what climate migration looks like, but then very specific, you know, actionable ways to get involved from some of these community partners and legislatures. And then I know there's also a, a second day at the Post. If, Farron, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about that some. Yeah. So the second day at the Post will have uh, two panels. Um, the, the first panel um, in the in the morning is about uh, colonialism, migration, and the climate crisis broadly. Um, Karen will be speaking on that panel um, uh, along with uh, Juan Mancias, who is the um, the chair of the Carrizo Comacuto tribe, who's been uh, organizing around um, uh, a project called Stop Texas LNG, which is uh, a, a longstanding um, uh, project to build an LNG terminal uh, near Brownsville. Um, and connect it through pipelines. Um, and the site of the terminal is um, on um, something um, called Garcia Pasture, which is the um, the uh, 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 burial grounds of the Carrizo Comacruto. And um, uh, so it's still, uh, the, the project has been going along. There's been quite a bit of funding that's been thrown at it and um, in terms of the LNG terminal Enbridge is, uh, has been involved and um, uh, but, it, but it still hasn't gotten its final permits so that's um, one will be talking about um, about his work there and and elsewhere and then I think and then um, the last uh, person on that panel is and Matt Manolo the artist Matt Manolo oh. um, uh, Houston-based Filipino born um, artist who's um, thinking about long legacies of colonialism in his work, uh, in his installation work. So that will be the the morning panel um, to try to, um, yeah, exactly connect those dots between uh, those three things. Um, And then the evening panel um, will be about food, uh, migration, and and climate change, of course. Uh, There'll be some amazing folks on that panel, um, including Johnny Rhodes, uh, chef and founder of Indigo. Anita J. Singani is the owner and chef of Pondicherry. Pierre or Matarania uh, Ruchinagiza is a is a Planet Forward farmer uh, mm. who's from the Congo who moved to Houston in 2017. Also, Roy Vu, who's a historian at, uh, uh, in Dallas, uh, will be uh, who, who whose work is on Vietnamese uh, food culture uh, and migration. So, I think in a place like Post, in a city like Houston, um, it's so important to to enter these topics through something like food, and I think it'll be um, an amazing way to think about. Uh, with some folks coming from very different backgrounds and experiences and trainings to all talk about um, uh, not just uh, how these things have have structured uh, our food system and our food culture, but also what to do about it. Where do we go? Uh, how do we how do we start to, to make a change and imagine a place that can change? So um, I think that will be really exciting. I think that's a really great point as well about the exhibit for folks who can't make the symposium, which you absolutely should. If you if you can make it, do. It's, it's going to be a, a great event. But uh, for those who can't make it, the exhibit is still running at the Post for several months. And, uh, you know, I'd love for you to just walk us through a little bit of what folks would see there because you are thinking very holistically not not just from a, a singular perspective, but really, you know, existing migration that's already happening within the U.S., global migration, animals and plants that are impacted by that and how mm-hmm. this is changing, that this is really, you know, a, a both a global and a local uh, issue that's going to be emerging more and more. So can you walk us through the exhibit a little bit that you have up? Sure. Um, the exhibit has about uh, a dozen Houston-based artists uh, who have work in the show. Um 
and uh, in addition, um, some interviews and sections that highlight uh, organizations like we already mentioned Eddie Canales from the South Texas Center for Human Rights. So um, um, his organization is highlighted uh, through a flag that he uses in the desert to, to uh, above water barrels that they're putting out there to help uh, undocumented folks. Um, so yes, one of our goals was to try to bring together the the human and the non-human, um, not to as an ethical sort of thing, but rather to say, um, to try to bring them both together to get a, on the one hand, to get a better picture, a better understanding of what migration means, and and also to um, find some productive overlaps in those things. Um, so there are certain sections which are about um, the language around native and invasive species. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain sections that highlight um, how uh, migration is a class issue where people who are coming to the United States to work wages are often um, um, uh, facing those militarized borders where multinational companies and investors who want to move shop to uh, places like Mexico are often protected or given free free uh, free travel by the government. Um, there's, um, there's things about um, experiences of diaspora, experiences of refugeeism, um, and um, uh, about migratory birds uh, and, and butterflies. Um, and um, I think that um, it's really a project that's trying to um, contain a, a big proliferation of stories about environmental disaster that are happening all over and try, trying to stay with those stories for a little bit longer. Um, and, and I think that's, um, uh, yeah, one of our big goals is, is to tell those stories, to make those stories exciting, to, to help us stay a little bit longer with those stories and so that we can um, that we can make them more of a part of our life and, and better understand um, uh, migration and environmental change. I kind of want to say that um, I really, I've said it before, I admire Houston Climate Justice Museum, and Aaron's co-director, co-founder, Tiffany Jin, um, had an idea, and so I'm running a graduate public history class right now, and she's really interested in how um, Houstonians of diverse backgrounds over the past maybe 60 years have used the arts as a form of activism against environmental injustices. So I'm so excited to work with them, and I think much of what Teresa's saying is so important about people's stories. And Leticia, uh, Leticia sorry, and um, sorry, Leticia, um, the stories that people have. And so we're trying to bring. We have the students doing interviews right now with arts leaders to identify artists and arts leaders to identify um, the history, so we can get a timeline and kind of just begin to um, look at. The way people have done this, oftentimes it's siloed in Houston. Different communities mm-hmm. are doing different things. And so we're really excited to work with them on that. And I think for someone like me, um, rather privileged, white, this is what I can do kind of behind the scenes is facilitate training students so that they can listen with respect and mm-hmm. do oral histories of people. And then they can take that out into the world and use it on their jobs and just train them in those sensitivities and appropriateness. And gathering the stories, like Arte Publico just last week at our school was doing um, at the Ripley Center, people could bring their family documents and have them archived. And mm-hmm. so these types of things are super important for community resilience. Yeah. So I just wanted to say I really love what the Climate Justice Museum is doing. And Tiffany's not here today, but her ideas are really brilliant. And I'm happy to work with her in achieving them.
Oh, I'm glad you highlight that, and, and thanks for, for bringing that to our attention. Mm -hmm. So just to remind everyone, this, uh, this two-day event, day one, is at Rice University's Glasscock School of Continuing Studies. Starts at uh, 10 a.m. is the first speaker. There'll be, there'll be breakfast and pastry kind of things before that, uh, and then it'll run till about 3 o'clock, drop in and out as you're able, but really great speakers, uh, kind of a panel conversation, multiple leaders from around the state. And then day two at Post Houston uh, at the Houston Climate Justice Museum exhibit there, running from uh, 11 to 4 p.m. Um, so you can swing by and, you know, get your favorite ice cream at the Post and then go over and, and hear about this really important work. So uh, and that's February 2nd and February 3rd. Uh, and, and thank you so much to, to all three of you for coming in today and talking with us about this. And I'm really looking forward to these events and, and so grateful for your time. Thank, thank you. you. And now our researcher, Jaden, has been working on a series of pieces focusing on droughts and water conservation. And for the first of these, she takes us out of uh, the Houston area and out of Texas over to the Great Salt Lake um, for a really fascinating story about what's been going on out in Utah recently and the situation out west in terms of water loss, drought, and what it means in the upcoming future. So we'll go to Jaden now with that. Hey y'all, I hope you're doing well. Today we're going to be discussing a relatively pressing matter, and that is, what would happen if the Great Salt Lake just suddenly dried up? This seems to be a question we'll have an answer to soon enough, unfortunately. The Great Salt Lake is the largest saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere. Located in the state of Utah, it takes up around 22,400 square miles and is unique in the sense that it's home to various islands. Antelope Island being one of the most well-known islands as it happens to be a state park. The Great Salt Lake also contributes to the formation of the Bonneville Salt Flats, a vast expanse of salt crust. Due to the lake's salinity and in turn its density, it has been ever increasing since the mid-1800s. Today, this beautiful lake is now eight times saltier than the ocean. Additionally, these flats are known for their unique geological features. So now, the ever-pressing question of what would really happen if the Great Salt Lake were to completely dry up. Well, there are several significant consequences that could occur such as water supply concerns, severe ecological impacts, air quality issues, as well as, no surprise, vast economic complications. One of the most pressing concerns is facing the challenges of water supply issues. The Great Salt Lake is connected to a water supply system in the region. This means that its disappearance would affect water availability for purposes such as agriculture, leading to water resource challenges. Presently, there are three rivers that flow into the lake, the Bear River, Weber River, and Jordan River. However, no water flows out, which means that the Great Salt Lake is classified as a terminal lake. Due to the shallow and salty nature of the lake, it loses about 2 million acre-feet of water through evaporation every year. Moreover, in recent decades, there has been a significant decrease in water levels, leading to a 50% reduction in the Great Salt Lake size. This can partially be attributed to what we now call climate change. A recent scientific journal article from Brigham Young University warned that if no action is taken, the Great Salt Lake could go completely dry in five years, stating that over two decades of western mega drought, water diversions from rivers that feed the lake have increased in order to support farms and thirsty growing cities. In more recent years, there has been a substantial increase in the demand for the same fresh water due to new development, agriculture, and industrial needs. Additionally, Utah State University's Wayne Wurstbaugh stated that for every foot the lake drops, an average of 44 square miles of lake bed is exposed. In 2022, 
the Great Salt Lake's water level fell to the lowest ever recorded at 4,188.2 feet, which is 17 feet below where it should be. While this is undeniably a bad situation, some good did come out of it. Prior to this, the Great Salt Lake was referred to in a rather negative way, and nobody appreciated it. However, recently, change seems to be on the horizon. The Utah State House approved a $40 million fund to restore the lake shrinking wetlands. In addition to that, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints donated 20,000 acre-feet of water to help ease the shortage. Aside from concerns of water shortage issues, many are grappling with the ecological changes coming down the pike. At present, it is already noticeable that along the shrinking shorelines, migratory birds have vanished. A report by the University of Utah stated that one major problem is that the ecosystems that thrive off the lake is slowly collapsing. For example, Several bird species that feed on the brine shrimp in the lake are now unable to find enough of these shrimp to sustain themselves. As a result, many of these birds eventually starve to death. With the lake depleting at rapid rates, brine shrimp and flies will begin to die off as well due to the algae becoming potentially inedible. Other ecological problems will arise as the lake regresses and invasive species will begin to take over, negatively impacting the remaining species in the ecosystem that are struggling to survive as it is. Additionally, while given its name, it is not surprising that the Great Salt Lake is known for its high salinity. But as the water levels decrease, the salinity can become more and more concentrated. This can and will negatively impact the survival of organisms adapted to the specific salinity levels and ultimately further disrupt the balance of the lake's ecosystem. Due to fluctuations in salinity levels, there is a noticeable shift in fish populations and the livelihoods of those dependent on the lake's fisheries. Utah, particularly the Great Salt Lake, currently holds the top position as the world's leading producer of brine shrimp, contributing 45% to the global supply. Despite being recognized as the best managed fisheries globally, this status is now at risk due to increased salt concentrations and diminishing resources. Addressing the pressing concerns mentioned previously is crucial to reversing or at least preventing further damage. However, one issue that poses an immediate risk to the health and well-being of the Salt Lake City population is the rapid decline in air quality. With the lake drying up, the air surrounding Salt Lake City could sporadically become poisonous. Since the bed of the Great Salt Lake holds high levels of dangerous particles like arsenic, copper, and zirconium, among various other heavy metals, many people in the Salt Lake area will be prone to lung damage, nausea, skin rashes, and increased heart rate or blood pressure, which can be detrimental to individuals' long-term health, according to the National Institute of Health. Additionally, in a PBS article, it discussed the risks of the Great Salt Lake drying up and exposing more chemicals. As these chemicals become increasingly exposed and dry, they are susceptible to wind. The resulting toxic dust storms have the potential to reduce life expectancies and increase rates of cancer and infant mortality. This is no longer a hypothetical scenario. It will become a reality if the lake continues on its current trajectory. Similar conditions have been observed in regions where lakes have dried up, emphasizing the seriousness of the situation. It is projected that as the lake is disappearing, it has the capability to poison up to 2.5 million people. Certain areas surrounding the Great Salt Lake are more susceptible to what is known as dust hotspots. These specific locations within the 800 square miles of exposed lake bed have a heightened potential to generate dust, which can be carried into Utah communities during storms. 
While winds typically impact areas east of the lake, like Wasatch Front communities, weather patterns can blow the dust into areas all over northern Utah. Representative Ray Ward, who is a member of the Clean Air Caucus, mentioned after a meeting that their presentation didn't immediately spark any new bill ideas for the future. However, he did say that it emphasized the need for new state appropriations, which may include the cost of analyzing the air quality data for Great Salt Lake dust. Moving away from the immediate environmental issues, the Great Salt Lake drying up has been the potential to cause immense economic ramifications. The loss of mineral extraction industry alone could end up costing $1.3 billion annually and more than 5,300 jobs. More concerning than that is over a 20-year period, it is projected that the potential cost could be as much as $25 billion to $32 billion, as well as the loss of more than 6,000 jobs. The Great Salt Lake plays a significant role in Utah's renowned snowfall, contributing 5-10% to and extending the ski season by 5-7 to weeks. The ski industry is supporting 20,000 jobs and adding $1.2 billion annually to the state's economy faces a threat from the diminishing lake. Furthermore, the decline of the lake poses a substantial risk to tourism revenue in Utah. Salt Lake's annual $4 billion visitor economy constitutes nearly 40% of the state's overall $10-plus visitor economy. The Utah ski industry contributes $256.8 million to tourism revenue, is also at great risk if the Salt Lake continues on its current path. So, to conclude, the drying up of the Great Salt Lake poses multifaceted challenges that extend beyond environmental concerns. The looming water supply issues driven by climate change and increased water diversions threaten not only the lake itself, but also the border regional water availability for agriculture. The ecological consequences are already evident, with the collapsing ecosystems affecting migratory birds, brine shrimp, and other species. The escalating salinity and depletion of resources further jeopardize the delicate balance of the lake's ecosystem, impacting corporations such as fisheries. The immediate risk to public health in Salt Lake City must be prioritized, as the drying lake bed holds dangerous particles that, when exposed, could lead to severe health issues. The potential for toxic dust storms carrying harmful chemicals poses a direct threat to the well-being of those residing in Salt Lake City, with projected impacts on life expectancy, cancer rates, and infant mortality. Economically, the ramifications are significant, with the potential loss of mineral extraction industry costing billions annually and thousands of jobs. The vital ski industry, dependent on the lake for snow and extended seasons, faces a threat that could impact thousands of jobs and contribute to the state's economy. The tourism sector, a major contributor to the state's revenue, is also at risk of decline, further exacerbating the economic challenges posed by the disappearing Great Salt Lake. While recent efforts such as the Utah State House's approval of funds for wetland restoration and water donation show signs of awareness and action, addressing the complex issues surrounding the Great Salt Lake requires sustained efforts and collaboration across various fields. The urgency to mitigate environmental health and economic impacts emphasizes the need for proactive measures to preserve this unique ecosystem and its contributions to the region's well-being. Thanks, Jaden. We'll go over to Sienna now, who has an update on what you can do to be involved around town this week. Hey, everyone. This is Sienna coming to you with some upcoming opportunities to get involved. Join the Coastal Prairie Conservancy this upcoming Friday, February 2nd, from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. to help take care of the Indian Grass Preserve. Nestled within the preserve, the Katy Prairie is more than just a beautiful natural area. It's a critical spot for biodiversity and conservation efforts. 
So every Tuesday and Friday, volunteers participate in activities critical to the success of the Coastal Prairie Conservancy's restoration and public access programs. From maintaining the Anne Hamilton Trail to cultivating native species in the Coastal Prairie Native Seed Nursery, planting wildfires and removing invasive species, volunteers engage in hands-on activities that directly contribute to the preservation of this very important ecosystem. It's important to note that some physical effort is involved. Volunteers may find themselves bending, kneeling, or sitting on the ground, and there may be some light lifting. For attire, to ensure a safe and enjoyable experience, the preserve recommends closed-toed shoes, tall socks, long pants, a long sleeve shirt, and a hat. These choices will protect you from the elements and potential hazards while you immerse yourself in the prairie. Ready to join this initiative? Start by completing the volunteer application on the Indian Grass Preserve website. Once that's done, reach out to Bethany Foshi via email for more detail and to sign up for this fantastic opportunity. Again, you can complete the volunteer application on the Indian Grass Preserve website. So mark your calendars for Friday, February 2nd from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. and let's come together to make a difference on the Katy Prairie. Thanks, Sienna. A quick reminder that if you're enjoying Gulf Streams, please check out our podcast. You can listen to previous episodes anytime on your favorite podcast app. And we also feature occasional bonus content only available through the podcast. So make sure to subscribe so you can keep up to date on all the news, stories, and ideas featured here on Gulf Streams. Uh, and tune in next week when we'll be talking about folks around town who are working to make our lawns better places and more environmentally friendly for all of us. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westontea.rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski. Co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer Rico Enriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT, Houston 90.1 FM, Galveston 89.5 FM, and Huntsville 89.7 FM.